2004, Bob Dow and Bobby Joe Smith were living together in a party house in Mineral Wells, Texas. The nature of their relationship is as disputed as pretty much everything else in this case, particularly what happened on May 5th, 2004, when Bobby Joe and her girlfriend Jennifer went on the run. 16 years later, we have to ask, is the wrong person in prison? I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. All right, here we are back with another episode. A quick warning on this one. It does contain accusations of sexual violence, including possible child pornography. Graphic details are not part of the case, so I won't get into them. However, listener discretion is still advised. I want to thank Sarah for recommending this case to me, and it was one of the more complicated cases I've had to try to structure because I can't tell you exactly what happened. No one seems to tell the same story twice, and everyone from witnesses to the perpetrator all have very different recollections of what happened. The two main sources for this episode were the book Bad Girls by M. William Phelps and a Texas Monthly article by Katie Vine called Girls Gone Wild. This case takes place in the area of Mineral Wells, Texas, which is about an hour from Fort Worth. I really have no idea where to start, so let's go ahead and jump into the relationship between two teenagers, 19-year-old Bobby Joe Smith and 18-year-old Jennifer Jones. Both young women grew up in chaos. There's really no other way to frame it. Jennifer grew up one of four sisters. Her mother was Kathy and her father, Jerry, and Jerry was only the father of Jennifer and her younger sister, Stephanie. The older sisters had different fathers. Jerry and Kathy married, but it was relatively short-lived. When Jennifer was three years old, they separated, with Kathy taking custody of all four of the girls but she had been using drugs, and her ability to care for her children decreased right alongside her increased drug usage. Jennifer and Stephanie were soon living with their father, Jerry, and eventually Kathy sent the older two girls to live with Jerry as well, even though he was legally their stepdad. Jerry wanted to get the whole family back together, including Kathy, so he would always keep the door open. Sometimes he would even drive around town looking for her, trying to coax her to come back home. The times when Kathy was sober, she would come around more, but when she was actively using, she largely stayed away. Kathy's drug use also led to some prison time where Jerry would take the girls to visit her on Sundays. As Jerry struggled to take care of four little kids, he ended up unable to hold down a full-time job, and he had to work more odd jobs here and there to accommodate for his childcare needs versus just working a regular nine-to-five. This led to a lot of financial and housing insecurity. They would move between low-rent apartments and cheap hotels. Jerry's sister Melanie and her husband Richard were worried about Jennifer and Stephanie. Kathy showing up and then disappearing, the 
prison visits, and the moving constantly wasn't good for them. Melanie and Richard started putting in more time and work to try to help the girls in the hopes of giving them some sense of family and some sense of stability. And they hoped that Jerry would eventually stop Kathy from floating in and out of their lives, because from their perspective, Kathy was a bad example, and this on-again, off-again relationship with her kids was actually causing more harm than good. Melanie and Richard, unlike Jerry, were financially stable. They had the money for extras, like taking the girls on vacations and doing things like that. When the girls would do well in school or with their behavior, they would be rewarded. Eventually, after Jerry and the girls were evicted from yet another apartment, and Jerry was about to move into a motel, Melanie and Richard had the two girls come live with them. The structure provided day in and day out was exactly what Stephanie needed and wanted. She did really well. But Jennifer still struggled. She kept a diary at the time, and she wrote about not wanting to turn out like her mom, but then she also seemed to have a fascination with how tough Kathy was. There are also some indications of impulse control issues. It seemed like Jennifer wanted to be like Kathy, but have things turn out better for her. But that's not how it went. Jennifer saw the same outcomes for her same behaviors. She started getting in trouble with the law. She was stealing cigarettes and using drugs. So her aunt and uncle laid out some ground rules for her to continue staying with them. And the number one rule was no drugs. So when they found drug paraphernalia in her room, they sent her back to her dad. At this point, Jerry was living in a motel with one of Jennifer's older half-sisters, Audrey. Jennifer dropped out of high school and went to work, though she quit the job she got pretty soon after she was hired there. Jerry, Audrey, and Jennifer, who was then 18, ended up getting an apartment in Mineral Wells, and that's where they were living in March 2004 when Jennifer met 19-year-old Bobby Joe Smith. This is the first place where the stories diverge. At the time they met, Bobby Joe was actually dating Jennifer's sister, Audrey. Jennifer has this whole romantic story about how she met Bobby Joe when Audrey brought her to the apartment and Bobby Joe wooed her and was her first kiss with another woman. And Jennifer just really all throughout paints this relationship as a romance for the ages. But Bobby Joe says that it really wasn't like that at all. The start of their relationship was not really a big deal. They did meet through Audrey, who Bobby Joe was dating at the time. That much they agree on. But after a day of doing drugs together, Bobby Joe said they slept together. And after that, Jennifer just stuck around. There was no wooing. There was no kissing under a tree. It was just drugs and then sex. Bobby Joe didn't mind having Jennifer around, but she wasn't monogamous, and according to her, she didn't see the relationship as anything serious, certainly not what Jennifer portrayed it as. 
Like Jennifer, Bobby Joe's life did not have a lot of stability. The stability that she did have was provided mostly by her grandmother, who raised her just 15 to 20 minutes outside of Mineral Wells. Her father had left before she was even born, and her mother Tammy, like Jennifer's mother Kathy, had substance abuse issues. As a teenager, Bobby Joe did live for about a year with an aunt and uncle, but she really rejected their strict rules. She then moved in with her mother for a short period before she moved in with her boyfriend when she got pregnant with their son. She and her son's father knew each other since they were in middle school. When the little boy was born, Bobby Joe did drop out of school, and even though she was only 16 years old, she and her son's father did plan to marry, but they broke up before that happened. But Bobby Joe made a connection with her ex's stepfather, a man named Bob Dow. Bob was a maintenance man at a few local apartment complexes, and he taught Bobby Joe some basic fix-it skills so she could earn money working for him. After the split with her ex, Bobby Joe lived with Bob sometimes, though she would bounce back to her grandparents' house. Her son was living with relatives. The situation with Bob Dow wasn't a benevolent father figure relationship, though Bobby Joe generally did consider him a father figure, just maybe not a fully benevolent one. Bob was an amateur pornographer. He would use Bobby Joe and drugs to lure young women over to his house to pose for pictures and videos. Some of the girls do not appear to be 18, meaning these pictures and videos likely also include child pornography. Bob's ex-wife said that he called Bobby Joe his chick magnet because she would get these women to come over to the house. Bob and Bobby Joe actually stayed between two different homes. One was Bob's trailer, kind of outside the city a bit, and the other was his mother's house. Bob's mother, Lila, was in her 80s, and she had suffered a stroke. She required care, and that was provided by Bob's brother until December 2003, when he died of a heart attack. Bob moved into the house part-time to help care for his mother, but he largely used the house for partying with women and girls. His mother, Lila, was confined to a bed in her back bedroom. When Bobby Joe brought Jennifer over to the house for the first time, Bob had been caring for Lila for about three or four months. Though it is debatable how much care Bob was able to provide. He was 49 years old, very sick with heart problems, and actively using drugs and alcohol to excess. Bobby Joe was supposedly helping with Lila, and then Bob's ex-wife Elizabeth would come by to help when she could. She was hoping to fill in some of the gaps in care. Elizabeth thought that when Bobby Joe moved in, the plan was for her to help with Lila and with the house, but she didn't see any of that happening. So one day, she tried to talk to Bob about the situation. She told him he really needed to kick Bobby Joe out. The house was a mess. She wasn't really helping with Lila, 
And Elizabeth felt that Bobby Joe was using Bob for a free place to stay and drugs. Elizabeth was aware to some degree of the partying situation that happened in the house, but she did not participate. It seems like her concern for going over to the house was really to check on Lila. And she definitely did not like Bobby Joe and told Bob that she was trouble. Bobby Joe's family, on the other hand, thought Bob was the problem. Her mother characterized Bob as almost having brainwashed Bobby Joe. He kept her so drugged up that she didn't know what was going on half the time, and she would just do whatever Bob wanted her to do. And if whatever Bob wanted her to do extended to a sexual relationship, we don't know. Bobby Joe said she never had sex with Bob willingly, but other people told her that Bob would rape her when she was passed out from whatever substance she had used. But others have said that Bobby Joe did have sex with Bob and called it paying the rent. Regardless of the relationship between Bobby Joe and Bob, Bobby Joe did bring young women over to Bob's house to party, and that eventually included Jennifer. At one point, Bob asked Bobby Joe to see if Jennifer would sleep with him. She relayed the question, and Jennifer said, no way. Over the next couple of weeks, Bobby Joe and Jennifer were staying at the party house, and Bob asked a few more times if Jennifer would sleep with him. According to Jennifer, Bobby Joe got more and more upset the more he asked. She basically told him that he could sleep with any other girl she brought over, but not Jennifer. Again, this is that passionate love that Jennifer said Bobby Joe felt for her. Bobby Joe says this is all nonsense. She didn't care who Jennifer was sleeping with, and she assumed Jennifer did or eventually would have sex with Bob, since most of the women who came around did. Bobby Joe was not monogamous during the time she was with Jennifer herself, in spite of whatever Jennifer believes, and that has been backed up by witnesses. But you really cannot possibly find two people who characterize their relationship more differently than Bobby Joe Smith and Jennifer Jones. The one thing they could agree on was the role of drugs in their lives. It really cannot be overstated. Waking up and numbing themselves with substances was their existence. They would use whatever was put in front of them, alcohol, pills, meth, whatever. They would stay high and awake for days and then crash. So it's really hard to rely on their memories of what happened between them and even their perception of other people's feelings. Things were such a haze. One of the more sensational things that they remember differently had to do with having shared paranoia. According to Jennifer, they both thought that someone was trying to break them up, and they overheard this person saying things, things that this person wasn't actually saying. They could just hear it, kind of read that person's mind. They believed that she put a hex on them, and was going to break them up with this hex or curse or whatever. So they were planning to burn the whole house down to get rid of the hex. But instead, they decided they just had to burn 
the person's belongings, and that would break the spell. Bobby Joe says this never happened, nothing even like this happened, and Jennifer's just completely making it up. And this seems like something that could be fact-checked, because Jennifer said they burned someone's belongings, so that person named by Jennifer could come out and say yes or no if this happened. But from what I can tell, she has never publicly spoken on the case, which is also why I'm not going to name her. But this idea of shared psychosis is being put forward by Jennifer. It is being accepted as fact in some of the tellings of this story, and it does make it psychologically interesting. But without fact-checking, we really can't evaluate it. Jennifer would put this burning incident a few days before the two women were arrested for shoplifting. And this shoplifting incident is really what set into motion everything that follows. In early May, about five or six weeks into Bobby Joe and Jennifer's relationship, they went to a mall in Fort Worth. Bob went with them, but he eventually got bored or tired from walking around the mall. So he said he'll go wait in his truck for them to come out when they finish up. The two went into the JCPenney's department store. Bobby Joe had some birthday money, and she used it to buy a couple of things. After they checked out and walked out of the store, two security guards approached and brought them back in. According to Bobby Joe, she showed them the stuff in her bag and her receipt. But there was something in the bag that was not on the receipt, a watch that cost $64. The guards had watched over the security feed as Jennifer took the watch and slipped it into her purse. Bobby Joe claimed she did not know that Jennifer had taken the watch, and she also did not know that Jennifer had put it into her shopping bag after they checked out. But both were arrested and sent to the county jail. When they had to give their information, they both listed Bob's address as their residence and his phone number as their contact number. The two spent the night in lockup until Bob bailed them out the next day. Bobby Joe wanted to go to her mother's boyfriend's house immediately because her mother had her son there that day, and she wanted to see him. Her mother's boyfriend, though, did not like or trust Bob or Jennifer, so they waited in the truck while Bobby Joe was inside spending some time with her son. The next thing Bobby Joe knew, Jennifer came running inside screaming that Bob was going to rape her or had tried to rape her. Bobby Joe ran out of the house yelling for Bob to leave, and he took off in his truck. According to what Jennifer said happened, while the two were sitting alone in his truck, Bob told her that it cost him a lot of money bailing them out. Jennifer told him they were going to get jobs, they were going to pay him back. Then Bob told her he didn't want the money, and that she could pay off the debt by sleeping with him. That's when Jennifer got out of the truck and ran inside. Bobby Joe was furious. She didn't care who Bob slept with willingly. 
But she didn't like that Bob was pressuring someone into having sex with him. She didn't like that he was using this bail money to coerce Jennifer into doing something she didn't want to do. Leading up to this incident, Bobby Joe had been missing her son, and she wanted to be more involved with him. The party scene was keeping her away from him and leaving her feeling empty. Sobering up in county jail overnight likely also helped Bobby Joe reach some clarity. And then Bob made advances to Jennifer, which interrupted Bobby Joe's time with her son, and everything just clicked for Bobby Joe. She was done. According to Bobby Joe, she wanted to go to Bob's house to get her things so she could move back in with her grandmother for good, clean up, and be part of her son's life. According to Jennifer, Bobby Joe didn't plan on leaving Bob's house. She planned on killing Bob so that she and Jennifer could be together and Bob wouldn't come between them anymore. So we have two very different stories. And they will continue to be different. Bobby Joe and Jennifer went to Bob's mother's house twice, but their timelines are blurry on when each visit happened. And they disagreed on what happened with each visit. In some cases, the details are meaningless, like when a window was broken. In others, the differences are everything. The first time they went to the house, both of them agree Bob was not home. They gathered their things, and Bobby Joe took a couple of guns. Bobby Joe said they were her guns that Bob had given her, and her intention was to take them and pawn them. She knew she was going to need money to live off of when she left. They then went back to Bobby Joe's grandmother's house. The second visit had to do with getting some money from Bob. He actually owed Bobby Joe $150 from some work she had done on an apartment, and she wanted it. It was May 5th, 2004, around 2.30 in the afternoon. Bobby Joe and Jennifer got into Bobby Joe's grandmother's truck and drove to Bob's house. On the way over there, one of them said they wanted to kill Bob. Who said it? Bobby Joe says it was Jennifer. Jennifer says it was Bobby Joe. Honestly, we will never know for sure exactly what happened in that house after Bobby Joe and Jennifer entered the front door and confronted Bob. What we know is that when they left the house, Bob Dow was dead. After leaving Bob dead in his mother's house, the women made a few stops, and one was at Bobby Joe's grandmother's house. They arrived with two trucks, her grandmother Dorothy's truck and Bob's. It was about 3.30 when they arrived, so they were gone in all for about an hour. Bobby Joe told her grandmother that she had to leave because she killed Bob. Dorothy told her to stay and explain what exactly was happening, but Bobby Joe just grabbed a bag of her stuff and got into Bob's pickup truck. Dorothy noticed that there were other people in the truck, Jennifer and at least two others. There were actually three other people in the truck because Dorothy's house was not the first stop after Bob's. Jennifer first insisted on going to see her mother, who was at her father Jerry's apartment. 
When they got there, Jennifer and Bobby Joe burst in, and Jennifer told her mother, I just killed Bob. And Bobby Joe piped in, we shot Bob. So here we are with some more contradictions. Jennifer told her mother she did it. Bobby Joe said they both did it. And Bobby Joe told her grandmother that she did it. In 60 minutes after going to Bob's house, we have three stories of what happened. And we are going to get into the versions of events in detail in a bit. Anyway, when they showed up at Jerry's apartment, Audrey and her current girlfriend, Crystal, were there. All three of the women at the apartment, Kathy, Audrey, and Crystal, first thought Bobby Joe and Jennifer were playing some kind of prank, but they kept insisting they were serious. Bob had attempted to rape Jennifer, and they killed him to protect her. We do have some more contradictions in everyone's story here about who exactly said what and who was upset and who wasn't upset, but it really just came down to Bobby, Joe, and Jennifer deciding that they were going to go on the run. And for reasons I will never understand, even if you explained it to me very slowly, Kathy, Audrey, and Crystal decided to go with them. Three women with absolutely no involvement in Bob's death jumped into a stolen truck and decided a road trip sounded like a good idea. So these three women were there when Bobby Joe told her grandmother that she had killed Bob. And so they're confused. Jennifer said she killed him. Now Bobby Joe saying she killed him. It really sounded like one of them was covering for the other, but the question was, which one? These five women then drove Bob's truck out to his trailer that was kind of on the outskirts of town. Bobby Joe said she wanted to go there because she needed her wallet that was at the trailer. But while they were there, the others started stealing stuff, whatever they could. They even took Bob's TV, which they would pawn for $75. They also pawned one of the guns Bobby Joe had previously taken from the house. As for the gun used as the murder weapon, they chucked that out of the window of the truck along the side of the road. Then the women just kept driving west, stopping every few hours because the truck would keep overheating. Meanwhile, back home, Bobby Joe's uncle Rick Cruz called the Mineral Wells police. He told them that he came home around 4.30 in the afternoon to find his mother-in-law Dorothy very upset and unsure what she should do. He asked her what happened, and she told him about Bobby Joe showing up and saying she shot Bob. Rick wanted the police to go out to Bob's house to find out what was going on, since Bobby Joe sometimes said bizarre things when she was high. They didn't know if it was true, and if it was true, Bob might need medical assistance if he was injured but still alive. The issue Rick and the police had was that Rick didn't know off the top of his head the exact address or the name of the street that Bob lived on. He just knew the neighborhood and basically where the house was. No one had called in to say that they heard gunshots in that area, so they really didn't know where to go. 
Rick ended up driving to the police station to meet the police officer there and had him follow him out to the area of Bob's house. They drove around until they eventually found the right place. The officer knocked on the front door but got no response. Around the back, there was a window pane that had been smashed out on the back door. And it's one of those little panes that you can smash and then reach in to unlock the door. This indicated that someone may have broken in, so the officer called for backup and waited to go in for the welfare check until they arrived. When the police did enter, the house appeared to be empty of people, but it was full of trash and dirty dishes. In the living room, which was already small and fairly cramped, there were piles of videotapes, there was a mattress on the floor, and a computer desk and chair were nearby. After clearing the shared living spaces and finding no signs of anyone, the police entered the bedrooms. They first thought they found two dead bodies, one in each bedroom, Bob and his mother, Lila. But it turned out that Lila was actually alive. She was not in good shape, and she was rushed to the hospital. So you'll be relieved to know that she was stabilized and moved to a nursing home where she was well cared for, finally, for two years until her death at the age of 89. But Bob Dow, her son, was not okay. He was found dead from multiple gunshot wounds to the head in his own bed. Even after Lila was given nutrition and fluids at the hospital and was more lucid, she still couldn't give the police any clues as to what happened in the house. They were going to have to get this information from the scene. And the scene was chaotic due to the general mess of the house, but they found Bob in bed, on his back, and naked. He had what looked at first like a pillowcase covering his head, but it turned out to be a laundry bag. The evidence indicated that Bob had been shot while the bag was over his face, but it wasn't pulled over his head. It was just draped, covering his face. Additionally, the blanket was pulled up to his waist. Due to the number of close-range shots to his head, his face was mostly unrecognizable. It looked like Bob had been shot at close range while he was asleep or at least lying down. Gunshot residue tests showed that the gunpowder fell on the backs of both of his hands, on his chest, and his upper abdomen. The person who killed him had to have been leaning over him or possibly even straddling him. And the police had a pretty good idea of who this killer was. Bobby Joe's family had told them that she confessed to the crime and she was on the run with her girlfriend, Jennifer Jones, and some others. Now, while on the run, this group of women were actually keeping in touch with family back home, particularly Jennifer's father, Jerry. They wanted to know if anyone was onto them, and the family members they contacted would eventually start working with the police to get the women home. It's because of these communications that we know this time on the run was full of discord. 
At one point shortly after they left Mineral Wells, Bobby Joe called her mother. She said she was not the one who shot Bob, but that Jennifer's family was going to try to pin the murder on her. She said that Kathy kept trying to talk her into taking the rap solely, saying that prison really wasn't that bad. And then we have Jennifer's mother and sister who were in the truck. They're starting to get nervous about how this was going to end. Jennifer believed she was a descendant of Clyde Barrow of Bonnie and Clyde fame. And I've already mentioned her romanticizing events. It was a worry that Jennifer would want to go down shooting like Bonnie and Clyde had, or maybe pull a Thelma and Louise and drive off a cliff. They did not want that to happen to Jennifer, especially while they were riding in the truck with her. So this was obviously a tense situation as the women kept driving with no real destination in mind and virtually no money. On May 7th, two days after the murder, four of the women stopped in Buckeye, Arizona. Crystal, the girlfriend, had already ditched. About an hour before they got to Buckeye, they were in Chandler, Arizona, and Crystal called her mom. She wanted to come home. The other four continued on, leaving her to get picked up by her mother. They pulled over in Buckeye and planned to get a room at a Days Inn as soon as Jerry could wire them the money. At the motel, they met a man who already had a room there, and he invited them to wait in his room while they figured out their financial situation and got their own room. This man reportedly was cooking meth in his room, so some or all of the women ended up smoking it with him. Then someone had the idea that Jennifer and Bobby Joe had to get married. It's another story with various versions, depending on who you ask, and it's not clear whose idea it was, but it stemmed from something Kathy said. She brought up the concept of spousal privilege, the idea that if Jennifer and Bobby Joe were married, they couldn't be compelled to testify against each other. Now, Texas does have spousal privilege law, but it is not retroactive. It doesn't apply to anything that happened prior to the beginning of the marriage. It also only applied to legal marriages. In 2004, two women could not legally marry each other in the state of Arizona or most of the United States. Even if they could, your mom reading some scriptures from a Gideon Bible that you found in the drawer of the meth room is not legally binding. You need to apply for a license. But ignoring all of this, for whatever reason, they all thought this was a great idea, and Bobby Joe and Jennifer were fake married in front of the Days Inn that day. Meanwhile, back in Texas, Jerry was in contact with the police. He wanted to go out to Buckeye to pick up Audrey and Kathy, who seemed at this point eager to get out of this mess. Jerry was trying to get them to bring Jennifer home, even if they had to drag her into the car. If this really was self-defense, the police told Jerry that they needed Jennifer to come in and make that statement. The longer she was on the run, the more guilty she looked. 
Jerry found out where they were, and he passed the information on to the police. So ahead of Jerry going out to Buckeye to get them, the local police moved in on the motel room to arrest Jennifer and Bobby Joe. But when the police officers demanded the women exit the motel room, only Audrey and Kathy were there. It turned out Bobby, Joe, and Jennifer had left shortly before the police got there. They ditched Audrey and Kathy because they saw them talking to someone at a local truck stop. Worried that they were going to the police, Bobby, Joe, and Jennifer put their stuff out of the truck and took off heading to California. The police took statements from Kathy and Audrey immediately, and in Kathy's initial statement, she said that Jennifer had confessed to shooting Bob, but only because he tried to rape her. She also said Bobby Joe had brainwashed Jennifer and may have put her up to it. Later, when they were back in Texas, the women would lead the police to the murder weapon where it was thrown out of the window, and the police were able to recover it. Kathy, Audrey, and Crystal all seemed willing to cooperate with the police, but they were limited themselves in what they knew. As for Bobby, Joe, and Jennifer, they made it about two hours to the Arizona-California border and pulled over in Blythe, California, to sleep. Not surprisingly, Jennifer has a very romantic story about the two lying side-by-side on a blanket under the stars while they listen to the radio. That George Strait song from Pure Country came on, the I Cross My Heart one, and the two slow-danced under the stars. Bobby Joe says none of that happened. Tired and afraid, one of the first things she did in Blythe was call her mother Tammy. She told her that she wanted to come home, and Tammy let her know that there was a warrant out for their arrest. Tammy talked to Jennifer on the phone as well and says, Jennifer said, Bobby Joe did not kill Bob. She wasn't even in the house when it happened, but she wanted to take the blame to protect Jennifer. That's according to Bobby Joe's mother. After talking to Tammy, Bobby Joe then called her grandmother Dorothy and told her basically the same thing. When Dorothy hung up with Bobby Joe, she immediately called the police. She told them exactly where the girls were. After the two phone calls, Bobby Joe and Jennifer went to sleep in the truck. At 3.45 in the morning on May 8th, after two and a half days on the run, the police surrounded the truck and arrested both women without incident. There was no Bonnie and Clyde ending here. When the two were interviewed, separately, of course, they gave essentially the same story. But both admitted it was a story they concocted together to cover for what really happened. So this is about the only thing Jennifer and Bobby Joe agree on, that this first story they told was a lie. But I'm going to tell it to you anyway. They said that they arrived at the house and Bob was there. Bobby Joe talked to Bob in private, telling him that what he said and did to Jennifer was wrong. He apologized for what he did, and Bobby Joe left the house. She was going to the corner store to pick up some things, and this left Jennifer and Bob alone. 
Jennifer said that after Bobby Joe left, Bob said he couldn't believe that she had told people he tried to rape her. Jennifer was uncomfortable with how Bob was acting and the tone of the conversation, so she stood up. She had previously left a purse in the bedroom, so she went in there to get it, and Bob followed her. Jennifer had her back to Bob when she picked up her bag, and when she turned around, Bob pushed her onto the bed. He told her that she was going to have sex with him or he was going to kill her. He then began assaulting her. Bobby Joe walked in, and there was loud music playing, so Bob didn't hear her come in. Bobby Joe, realizing what was happening, grabbed Bob, and the two started fighting. Bobby Joe, in her version, had a few more details about the fight, more than Jennifer had, but it was still more or less the same story. At some point, Bobby Joe shoved Bob and he fell onto the bed. Bobby Joe then grabbed the laundry bag and for some reason put it over his face, and Jennifer, who had grabbed a gun out of fear, pointed and fired at Bob. Bobby Joe was stunned when the gun went off. Bob was still moving, so Jennifer shot again until Bobby Joe grabbed the gun from her. This story does have a few holes in it. Bobby Joe is a tiny person. She is short. She is very thin. Bob was a much bigger guy, outweighing her by at least 100 pounds and several inches taller than her. Even in his poor health, if he was strong enough to attack Jennifer, how did a fight with Bobby Joe not leave any marks on her? And why weren't there signs on Bob or in the room that a fight occurred? So when the women were back in Texas, the police told them they wanted to have them polygraphed because they didn't believe the attempted rape story. Both women agreed But in the pre-interview process, on the day of the tests, both of them changed their stories. They didn't even get to the polygraph test before they changed their stories. And now we have story number two. Jennifer's new story was that they went to Bob's house and he apologized about his comments asking for sex in trade for bail money. While he was talking to Bobby Joe, Jennifer slipped into his room and got one of his guns. She put it between the nightstand and the bed. After Bobby Joe left the house to run to the convenience store, Bob apologized again, and Jennifer said it was okay. She actually thought about it and decided it was a good idea. She wanted to have sex with him to pay off the debt. The two went into the bedroom, and while having sex, Jennifer asked Bob if she could put a pillow over his face so she could pretend he was someone else. Bob grabbed around and picked up the laundry bag off the floor. When he put it over his face, Jennifer grabbed the gun she had already planted within easy reach and fired. She said she shot Bob twice before she got off the bed and shot him three more times. Bobby Joe ran in and screamed, I can't believe you actually did it because Jennifer had said on the ride over there that she wanted to kill Bob. Now, Bobby Joe also changed her story, but she tried to take more blame, saying that she gave Jennifer the gun before they went into the house and that she also knew 
what Jennifer was going to do, even telling Jennifer to finish him off after the initial shots. Both essentially implicated themselves in a planned murder with these second statements, even though these second statements don't match each other. On June 24th, 2004, they were both indicted for murder. There were going to be a few hurdles the prosecution knew from the start they would have to overcome. One was that they had two defendants who could both point the finger at the other one. They've already changed their stories once, so who knows what they're going to present at trial? How would a jury know which one to believe? The second obstacle was that they did not have a sympathetic victim. They could point to Bob's service in the military, the caring for his mother in spite of his poor health, his children who lost their father. But the homemade pornography found on Bob's computer was going to be a problem. The biggest issues were going to be the more graphic content, like mock snuff films, and the images of girls who did not appear to have been more than 15 or 16 years old. The book I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, Bad Girls, talks about a concept in Texas of someone who needs killing. It's like the song, Goodbye Earl. Earl had to die. So did Bob have to die? Are people really going to fault two young, exploited women for killing a child pornographer, one who neglected his 80-something-year-old mother while he was cashing her Social Security checks and using that money to buy drugs to lure in underage girls for videos and movies? Is this something the jury is going to be able to see past? So the prosecution knew that they were going to have to lean hard on not taking the law into your own hands. There was nothing stopping Bobby Joe or Jennifer from calling the police on Bob Dow. There was enough going on in that house that was in plain sight that a knock at the door by a police officer could have unraveled it all. Even just a call reporting elder abuse against Lila would have done the trick to get someone in that house. Basically, Bobby, Joe, and Jennifer both had legal options, and they made no attempt to use them. That's where the state's case was going to have to focus. The district attorney who would normally have handled these cases did have to recuse himself. He was actually related to Jennifer on her father's side, and another prosecutor was assigned. Jennifer ended up not going to trial. She cut a deal after she found religion behind bars. She felt forgiveness, but had to take responsibility for what she did. So we skip the innocence or guilt phase and go right to sentencing in April 2005, just under a year after the murder. At the sentencing hearing, Jennifer had yet another version of what happened. This is when Jennifer said, for the first time, that Bobby Joe was angry about the advances Bob made towards her and 
that she told Jennifer to kill Bob. She said that Bobby Joe spoke with Bob privately when they first arrived, and it was to tell him that Jennifer was willing to have sex with him. It was all part of a plan to make him defenseless so that Jennifer could kill him. She also said Bobby Joe came into the room after the first two shots, told Jennifer she looked sexy with the gun, and when Bob moved or groaned, Bobby Joe told her to finish him off, which is when she fired three more shots. She said that they came up with the story of the attempted rape to try to get out from under a premeditated murder charge, and then she lied again in an attempt to protect Bobby Joe, the woman she loved. At the sentencing hearing, the prosecution tried to take the focus off of Bobby Joe. He wanted the jury to decide the fate for Jennifer as though she was fully culpable for what she did. He said that it was Jennifer's anger and resentment over men using her for sex bubbling up when Bob propositioned her, and she took it out on him. On April 20th, 2005, Jennifer was sentenced to 48 years behind bars. She will first be eligible for parole at the age of 42 in the year 2028. After sentencing, but before Bobby Joe's trial began, Jennifer then gave an interview to Texas Monthly, and she told yet another version of what happened. This is the fourth official version. In this article, Jennifer gave Bobby Joe a much, much larger role in everything. She said that Bobby Joe told her that they had to get rid of Bob so they could be together and that he was trying to split them up. Not being able to face losing Bobby Joe, Jennifer decided to help kill Bob. She said Bobby Joe handed her the loaded gun as they approached the house, and she hid it in her waistband. Jennifer's story was then the same about going in the bedroom with Bob willingly. But instead of Bobby Joe being out of the house at the convenience store at this point, Jennifer sang now that she was in the living room. The loud music had been turned on by Bobby Joe, and it was possibly to disguise the sounds of what was coming next. After Jennifer shot Bob twice, Bobby Joe came into the room and saw that he wasn't dead. In this version, instead of telling Jennifer to finish him off, Bobby Joe took the gun and did it herself. This is the only version of the story that ever says Bobby Joe fired any of the bullets. And this would not be the version Jennifer would eventually tell when she testified at Bobby Joe's trial seven months later. She went back to being the sole shooter. So who even knows what Jennifer's truth is at this point? It's not even clear if she knows. So at Bobby Joe's trial, the prosecution changed tactics. With Jennifer's sentencing hearing, they tried to avoid implicating Bobby Joe too much, making it sound like she was the driving force behind the murder. But now they want to get Bobby Joe convicted and sent away for at least as long as Jennifer. So now they're going to portray her as the mastermind. 
And in the United States adversarial system, this is entirely proper. The prosecution is not required to commit themselves to a singular theory of the crime. The state used Bobby Joe's second statement, saying that she gave Jennifer the gun and Jennifer's testimony to the same to make Bobby Joe the instigator. Jennifer portrayed her relationship with Bobby Joe as obsessive and that she would do anything for her. Jennifer also testified that Bobby Joe brought up killing Bob and that Jennifer actually tried to talk her out of it. But then she decided to do it for Bobby Joe and even denied from the stand that she told her family, I killed Bob. She said she told them, we killed Bob, even though none of them remember it that way. Jennifer also brought up some confusing stories about Bobby Joe dabbling in Wiccan practices, which I think only served to prejudice the jury against Bobby Joe more. She's already a tattooed lesbian in a conservative small town in Texas. She had a baby as a teenager. She left him to go make amateur porn and do drugs with a man 30 years her senior. So why not throw in some witchcraft? The defense had to counter all of these prejudices and also the juxtaposition between Bobby Joe and Jennifer in outward appearance. Bobby Joe looked the part of the hardened teenager who would murder a man she considered a father figure. She had the tougher-looking exterior, and Jennifer could pass as a Sunday school president. But it's really interesting to hear the people who were close to them describe them, because then it's the opposite. Bobby Joe's friends and family have described her as incredibly warm and kind and willing to give people a second chance. She dealt with childhood trauma and exploitation, and instead of this turning her hard, Bobby Joe remained loving and someone who picked herself up and wanted to do better. Jennifer had gone through very similar things in her life but her family has portrayed her as violent, getting into fights with her siblings where she would put her hands on their throats. When you hear them talk about Jennifer, you hear that she was oppositional and defiant. But that's definitely not what you see from the outside and not what the jury is seeing. The defense had to overcome all of this, which went against Bobby Joe by bringing it back to the evidence or the lack of evidence. In all of the official stories to law enforcement and told in the court, Jennifer pulled the trigger. She had the gun. In most of the stories, Bobby Joe wasn't in the house when the actual shooting occurred, and she came in after. In two statements, Jennifer said Bobby Joe was surprised she killed Bob, something that would have been odd if she already knew Jennifer was going to do it. The story that Bobby Joe told Jennifer to kill Bob and gave her the gun didn't come up from Jennifer's mouth until she was trying to get a lighter sentence. When it was time to save herself, suddenly she made Bobby Joe the puppet master. 
It could be like Jennifer said, and she was trying to protect Bobby Joe and realized she needed to stop playing games and be honest. But then she continued to change her story after that point. Any conversation Bobby Joe had with Jennifer about killing Bob was only witnessed by Bobby Joe and Jennifer, and Jennifer was on story number five by the trial. This was pretty much the defense's case summed up. Only Jennifer said Bobby Joe did it, and was she credible enough to convict someone beyond a reasonable doubt? And the jury said yes. Yes, she was. Bobby Joe was found guilty. She was sentenced to 50 years and will first be eligible for early release in 2029 when she will be 44 years old. But this isn't quite the end of the ever-changing stories of Jennifer and Bobby Joe. Jennifer has not, as far as I can tell, told her story since Bobby Joe's trial. Bobby Joe, however, did speak to M. William Phelps for his book, Bad Girls. What she told him is what she is saying now is the true version of what happened. Her statements to the police were lies, and that was to cover for Jennifer, but now she has nothing to lose and really nothing to gain from sharing her story. Bobby Joe said that Bob called her while she was at her grandmother's house that day. He wanted her to come back to the house so they could sort things out and that he was sorry for propositioning Jennifer the way he had. This was not uncommon in their relationship, where Bobby Joe would get mad at him for something, move back to her grandmother's house for a while, and then Bob would talk her into coming back. Bobby Joe knew she shouldn't go back to that house, but she wanted to get that money that Bob owed her, and then she was planning to go back home to her son. When Bobby, Joe, and Jennifer got to the house, Bob apologized in person. Everything seemed to be fine, so Bobby, Joe, left to go to the store to get cigarettes for her and Bob and to get Jennifer a drink. Jennifer stayed behind at the house, which also wasn't uncommon and actually a sign that things had been resolved. If Jennifer was afraid of Bob, she wouldn't have stayed by herself. Bobby Joe has no idea what happened because she was not there. It was when she got back from the store and was still outside that she heard a gunshot. Because this was the sort of neighborhood where people would target practice in their backyards, she wasn't immediately alarmed. As she neared the front door, however, Jennifer came running out wearing only a tank top and had blood on her. This is when she learned Bob was dead. Jennifer had shot him, and Bobby Joe did not know she was going to do it before she did. While Jennifer had said something to Bobby Joe about wanting to kill Bob, Bobby Joe didn't take it seriously. So that's the story from Bobby Joe. Not only did she not know Jennifer was going to kill Bob, she wasn't even in the house when it happened. And everything that came after was Bobby Joe's attempt to protect Jennifer. This would make her guilty of something like being an accessory after the fact, but not murder. But like Jennifer, this is not the first or second story she told. This is her third version of events. With this case, we are being asked at every turn, 
who do we believe, since Jennifer and Bobby Joe have given us completely different versions of pretty much everything. Even the portrayal of their relationship isn't consistent between them. I do think it's possible they're both telling the truth of their feelings. I think Jennifer was madly in love with Bobby Joe and really felt connected to her through that warmth and kindness that Bobby Joe showed her. But I don't think it was that deep for Bobby Joe, and I don't think she realized how fixated on her Jennifer had become until it was too late. Another thing about this case that is difficult for us is that it exists in a true crime area where we are so often uncomfortable. This is the place where the perpetrators were victims and the victim was a perpetrator. I think that may be why this story has not gotten a lot of coverage. It is uncomfortable to present it. I watched the Wicked Attraction episode on this case And they handled the issue by largely ignoring a lot of what Bob Dow did and focused on the Thelma and Louise, Bonnie and Clyde story of Jennifer and Bobby Joe. They spent more time saying the words lesbian lovers as though it was salacious or unsavory than they did addressing predatory behavior, exploitation, and child pornography. I can ignore irrelevant information that may be used to victim blame or smear someone's character. Most of the time when I bring it up, I'm using it to criticize the defense or the media for using this information against a victim. But what Bob Dow did is relevant to the murder, and to the trial, and to the motivations of Bobby, Joe, and Jennifer. I wouldn't have even covered this case if I was going to gloss over that, because then I'm not giving you the whole story. The state is saying that Bobby, Joe, orchestrated this, and Jennifer went along with it, and the motive was in how Bob Dow treated these two teenagers. But really, it does come down to what the state said in court. They had the opportunity to turn him into the police, and they chose not to. They did not exhaust all their other options before they decided to kill Bob Dow. Both Jennifer and Bobby Joe did appeal. Because Jennifer did not go to trial, she did have limited cause to appeal. What she appealed on was that the original DA, who stepped aside due to his relationship with her family, had done so in an improper way. But here's the issue with her appeal. Remember how I keep saying that you have to raise all of your complaints at the earliest possible moment in the process? Well, Jennifer knew the DA disqualified himself and that the other one came on board, and she made no complaint at the time. This is why it's important for attorneys to get all of their objections on the record, even if they're overruled. If you don't object before your conviction and you have all the information, your appeal isn't going to go very well. And we know the appellate process is already an uphill climb. Bobby Joe's appeal wasn't successful either. 
And this case is an officially solved, closed case. But I also think there is a little bit of mystery here because there is reason to believe Bobby Joe is innocent of the murder since Jennifer's credibility is in question. But I also don't know that I believe Bobby Joe. The book Bad Girls is interesting because the year before it was released, the author went on that Wicked Attractions episode that I criticized earlier. In his interviews in that show, he sounded like he believed Jennifer's version of the women being obsessively in love and Bobby Joe being in on the murder. But his conclusion was different in the book. He leaned towards Bobby Joe's innocence very strongly. And this is after he interviewed multiple people involved on both sides and spent more time with the details of the case. I think there is a possibility here of the truth being somewhere in the middle. It seems like there's no common ground in these stories, but I think it's possible that Jennifer believed Bobby Joe wanted her to kill Bob and still believes Bobby Joe communicated that to her through her words or actions. But that wasn't the message Bobby Joe intended to send. Jennifer's story to implicate Bobby Joe is her filling in the blanks in the story, because when it comes down to it, even Jennifer couldn't say for sure that Bobby Joe told her to kill Bob in those exact words. And if Bobby Joe did not tell Jennifer to kill Bob and did not know she was going to do it, then Bobby Joe is serving a prison sentence for a crime she didn't commit. (laughs) 